0: these early times of worship, we're going to be working through what are the core values of Manhattan Presbyterian Church. So it's kind of a series of unpacking what's important to us as a local church. And so last month we looked at just the gospel and we looked at the gospel because of the grace that we receive in the gospel. This is our only hope for the forgiveness of our sin and it's what we want to be ambassadors of here in Manhattan to our neighbors and our friends and to our family and really to anyone God brings into our lives. And so that's one of those foundational foundationals that we look at. So today we're going to begin looking at a different aspect of our core values, which is often called the means of grace. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. There tends to be a a lot of opinions on what this is. So let me just explain it like this. Just as God has ordained and designed that a plant should grow by real simple means of sunlight and, and water and maybe some dirt, so God has ordained that Christians grow and are transformed through simple God-ordained means, and there's three of these means of grace that we see in Scripture. The first being the Word of God, the second being the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the third being prayer. And so our desire here at Manhattan Presbyterian Church as a church is for us to be a healthy church and for Manhattan Presbyterian's congregation to grow and to flourish. And so it's for that reason that we're going to seek to be a church where the means of grace are found plentiful. And we put this, when we started writing things up, you know, months and months and months ago, I guess you can say years once we had that many months up, we said we want to be a church that is Scripture-saturated, that is sacrament-serving, and that is prayer-soaked. And that is absolutely stands true today. And so in further gatherings, we're going to be looking at, the, at prayer, and we're going to be looking at the sacraments, but today, today we're going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to unpack 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. In this book, Second Timothy, this is the final letter written from Paul the apostle to this younger pastor named Timothy and it's probably clear given the name that this was written to Timothy right it's written in the 60s just to be clear not the 1960s is what we tend to think of it but the actual 60s like 2000 years ago uh, and not long after this the apostle Paul is going to be killed uh, he's in an area where Christians are being persecuted and from what we see, it's not written in scripture, but one of the things we see in a lot of other historical uh, documents is that Paul is ultimately beheaded by the Emperor Nero because of his Christianity. And so this book, uh, along with 1 Timothy and Titus, are, are often called the pastoral epistles. Epistle is just a, a big word, or actually an old word, rather, uh, that means letters. And so these were letters that were, were written, and they're called the pastoral letters because they're written particularly to give instructions to, to pastors for the care of the church. And so Paul is, again, writing to this younger Timothy here, and it appears that he's encouraging Timothy towards four things in this letter. First, he's encouraging him to remain firm in his faith, and to remain firm in his faith despite the persecutions that are coming and that are going to be facing, and really they're going to increase and increase. So he's encouraging towards that. The second thing he's encouraging him towards is to guard the people of God from false doctrine, false teachers. And to do this, to be faithful to what he's been taught, and to be faithful to continue to teach that as well. Third, Paul is encouraging Timothy to make the preaching of the word his primary task. Finally, he encourages him to set the church in order by identifying and appointing godly leaders. And so in chapter two in this book, Paul tells Timothy, he says, What you have heard from me. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to also teach others. And so Paul knows this. You know, you get to that age, and, and Paul knows that his, his days are numbered. And he's given this direction for the future of the church. He's given this direction because he knows for the church to go on, they need to have this information. And so in these letters, we're seeing the church. And this is important to, to realize, particularly as we consider just the church in our age. The church is moving from this apostolic era to the post-apostolic era. And here's what that means. In the apostolic era, there were these miraculous signs being done by the apostles. And there was this ongoing revelation of God revealing himself in a unique way that way. In the post-apostolic era where we live today, God is still doing amazing things. But the signs in the new revelation has ceased. And so, yes, God himself still works miracles, healing people healing those who seem unhealable, uh, amazing works of providence that we see God doing, opening the eyes of sinful men and women to believe the gospel. That's a miracle. The fact that any of us in here believe the gospel really is an absolute miracle. But as far as how God is revealing himself today, the people of God are to trust in the word of God, the written word of God as has been given to us. And so it's worth Pointing out, if I'm going to make a statement like that, is that in these pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, that they are never encouraged to use miraculous gifts. If they had these gifts, wouldn't Paul have encouraged them to use them as he sets up the church for the future? And really, as much as I would love to see these gifts in practice today, scripture shows us another reality. And so the real question leads us to ask this, what did God give the church for the apostolic time And what has God given the church for all time? And so while I'm grateful that God has given gifts to the church during the apostolic age, I am equally grateful, and I hope you are too, that God has given us the written word of God. Because in this written word of God, he reveals his holiness to us, and he reveals our sinfulness to us, and he reveals the good news of the gospel, whereby he redeems his people from their sin. And so because the word of God... Is central to how God reveals himself to his people and we can say as a church that we are committed to the Word of God being central to our public worship and really everything we do and it's for this reason that we're going to preach the Bible it's for this reason that we're going to read the text of the Bible within the service we're going to include the Word of God in our prayers and I think you were hearing them earlier as uh, Steve was leading us in prayer uh, our call to worship at the beginning of the service is, is God calling us to worship in the text of Scripture. The benediction given at the end of the close of the service will be Scripture. Our singing is to express what Scripture teaches. And, and in fact, you might have noticed in your bulletin on the side, we, we put a bunch of Scripture references because we want to help you make that connection between the songs that we're singing and, and the Word of God. And so take these bulletins home. And read through this, go through it slower, make these connections, let this be something that is useful for your own devotions. And so, really, may everything we do be grounded in Scripture is what we're looking for. That's a bit long of an introduction, so let's read our text and and then we'll get into this. Beginning in in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The grass withers The flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It was 1898, and Ben had left the East Coast eight years ago to head west in the hopes of of making his fortune. Well, he wasn't rich, but he had accumulated over 300 acres of good land, and he had built a comfortable farm on it. He raised wheat and corn and all of his vegetables. He had managed to, to build his herd of cattle to over 200 head, and having accomplished all of this, in only eight years, he decided that it was now time. The ad that he placed in the New York newspaper said, Wanton, good woman, willing to be a pen pal. Marriage is a possibility for the right woman. Before long, someone actually responded to this, a woman by the name of Molly. And they began this correspondence. And their correspondence began to turn into love for each other. So eventually, she decided to come out and meet him. And so here he stood in the Kansas City train station, waiting to finally meet this woman. And when the train arrived, there were a lot of women getting off, and suddenly he yelled, Molly, over here! And she looked his way, and she walked over to him, and she smiled and held out her hand, and he held on to her for a moment, and then let go of it, and, and she said, How did you know it was me? He then reached into his back pocket of his overalls, and, and he said from these letters. She responded, But there's no pictures of me in them. And he dropped his head a bit, and he said, oh, yes, there are. There are lots of pictures in your words. You see, he had spent hours reading these letters and reading them over and over in the hopes that it's going to reveal who Molly was. And he had fallen in love with her words, words that had painted a portrait of who she was. You probably know where I'm going with this. God's word is like that. It paints this vivid portrait of who he is. If we wish to see God, we look into His Word. The church in the Bible is often called the the Bride of Christ. It's just a term to refer to the people of God, the church. And we as Christ's Bride should fall in love with His Word so that we can fall in love with its author. So today as we explore 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, my prayer is that God would stir a passion within you for His Word. Because I believe more than anything, this will shape how your life is lived and that it will lead you in such a way that God will be glorified and that you will be filled with joy. And so if I could see just one thing come true in your life, it would be a deep love for the word of God. And not because the Bible is the goal. And this is important. It's, it's not an end in itself. and Not at all. And in fact, I think there can be this tendency sometimes for us to think that reading God's word is, it just becomes this heavy yoke upon us. Where we feel guilty if we don't read it. Or think that if only I read it more, then I'd be a better Christian. So don't hear that today. Because the goal of the Christian life is not to read the Bible. No, the goal of the Christian life is that we live to glorify God and that we enjoy God. That's what we read in the Catechism, right? That we glorify God and that we enjoy God. And and the Word of God not only reveals that purpose to us, but it's also a a means to the goal of that becoming true in our lives. And so I wish to be very clear today, as I encourage you to read scripture, that this is not a heavy yoke being placed on you. It's a joy and it's a privilege that I want for you, that I desire for you, because the word of God really is amazing. It's like when you discover a new restaurant or food, and and you wanna bring your friends, and you want to have them try it too. And, And for us in town, that's been, Varsity donuts. I think everyone who's come in town to visit us, we take down the varsity donuts and and we make sure they eat it. And the real reason here is is not because we have some guilt on us that thinks, oh, it's my responsibility to take people to varsity donuts and so I should. It's it's not that at all. It's because we get joy from that experience. We get joy from these donuts. I know that's pathetic. (laughs) But we get joy from that and we want others to experience this as well. And so, uh, to an even greater degree, That's what I want for you today. As we work through these four verses, may God use this scripture to stir your desire to seek out opportunities to study the Word of God. Alone in your study of the Word, together as a family united, and wherever that it is preached or or taught faithfully, uh, that we'd gather and find joy in that. Really, I want to bring you back to even further back than the 60s, back to the beginning of the time to show you that the Word of God has mighty, mighty power. In Genesis 1-3, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. We read that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Have you ever really considered the way in which this verse really shows us the power of God's Word? Out of the mouth of God come these words, Let there be light, an absolute power nothingness responds to this command and becomes light. Even the way that it's said it is amazing. You know, I've, I've been in stores, I've been the parent in these scenarios before, but I've been in stores and, and you see parents telling their children, you know, put that back on the shelf and and you watch it and you think they're not responding at all. And so when the child doesn't obey, their voice gets louder and you can hear them get more irritated And often it begins to include this list of threats, things that they will never do or see again. You will never ever see candy again the rest of your life. And you can just hear this desperation in their voice because they speak and and their child does not respond to them. That's not what we see here. God in creation simply says, let there be light, and there was. The words that he chose, in fact, show just how powerful his words are. They're not words of someone struggling to gain control over the intended listener, but words of someone who knows he has absolute control over whatever and whenever and whoever it is that he speaks to. You see, the power of God's word, we see it everywhere in Scripture. You know, it goes forward from that point. We see in in Scripture by his word alone that Jesus cast out demons. By his word alone, Christ kills the fig tree because it would not bear fruit. Jesus is floating in a boat with the disciples and a huge storm comes and it threatens to kill the disciples. And remember, Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm by simply saying, peace, be still. And it responds. By his word, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The word of God is very powerful, not only in these miraculous ways, but in the life of every believer. And so I need to ask you, Christian, Do you believe this? Do you believe that the scriptures are God's revelation of himself for you? Do you believe it is powerful for your life today? Do you know that that this book is true? That it's true not only for Christians who believe it's true, but that it's absolutely true whether you believe it or whether someone else believes it or not? What's written in this book are the words of God for man revealing to us the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the world that we live in, the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of God's great work of redemption in history. And there's nowhere else that we can go to gain this information. In John, the gospel of John chapter 6, there's this beautiful picture where Jesus is out speaking and the masses just follow him. And they're there for all sorts of various reasons, and Jesus turns to them, and speaking of the future Lord's Supper, and they don't see this picture, you will though, he tells them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. You can imagine, if you, if you hear the man you're following turn around and tell you to eat his flesh and drink his blood, that that might weird you out a little bit. That's, that's cannibalism, and they wanted no part of that. And so these people turned back and they left Jesus. And finally, Jesus turns and he turns to his disciples and he asks them, What about you? Do you want to turn and go away as well? And Peter gives the most amazing answer. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? You see, there's no place else that we can go for the words of eternal life. And it certainly leads me to wonder this, how many of us want to know God deeply? We want to know God deeply, and yet we spend so little time in His Word. How we spend our time ultimately gives us an idea of of what's important to us. And if you're anything like me, what I'm about to explain to you is going to make you feel a little guilty. And I need you to know that guilt is not my goal. I need you to know that change of priorities and not guilt is the goal here. You know there are 168 hours in a week. 168 hours in a week. If you get eight hours of sleep, I know some of you don't, you get 56 hours of sleep in a week. You probably cut that in half for most of you, right? 40 hours of work. Some of you wish you worked just 40 hours. And you can start to see that uh, these hours are disappearing. And then in any given week, the Irish Christian is busy. and, And yet you find time to watch television and movies, time to surf the Internet, time to read fiction, to attend school, usually, browse magazines, go to piano lessons, busy ourselves with work, hang out with friends, play video games, attend practice, drive children to their activities, mow the lawn, bake cookies. Some of you are even attending the fantasy football teams on the side. To update our Facebook, to shop, and apparently to shop for an endless variety of shoes. These are the things that that we find time for in our lives. None of that is sin. You really should not feel guilty for anything I just listed. But it raises the question, how much of our time is spent in in reading and hearing and discussing and memorizing and, and in meditating on the Word of God? And my hope then is this that this simple reminder of, of how amazing God's word is, how powerful it is for our life, will give you the desire to soak in the scriptures. So this first portion of Second Timothy three, fourteen and fifteen says this. Look with me, real long. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We learn that Timothy has known the scriptures from childhood. This is a reference to the Old Testament writings. And early in this book, we learn that it was his grandmother, Lois, and his his mother, Eunice, that have taught him the word. And so we see this amazing picture of a family. And the way that his mother and his grandmother have been wise and diligent to teach him the word of God. And so we see this value of parents and even grandparents reading the word of God to their children and grandchildren. And this should lead us to ask this question, is some form of family worship going on in our homes? And I say some form because it doesn't have to be some formally organized family worship that looks like this worship exactly, but, but is the Word of God being read in your homes? Is the Word of God being taught to our families in some fashion? Because we need to be asking each other about this. We need to be learning from each other how we might be doing this better if we're not doing it now. And so I encourage you towards that. If it's not true now, seek to make that true in your life. And if it is, wonderful. What a beautiful thing that, that your family is. Are- is able to experience. And in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, then we read this amazing explanation of scripture and its power. And so I want us to read it again. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, This passage is often looked to when people are trying to prove that the Bible is the word of God and not man. And I I think it does that. But that's not the main point of this passage. Only in, in passing, really, does it even mention this thing. You know, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul does not give an argument then for the inspiration of scripture because really no one's challenging him on this point. That all scripture is breathed out by God is mentioned as simple fact because it is simple fact. Scripture is inspired, comes from the breath of God. And you know this, in the Greek, this phrase that we see in English that says breathed out by God is a single word. It's a word that Paul makes up to explain something that existing vocabulary could not explain. It's this mashing together of two words. And we still do this today. And I love the words that that people come up with constantly. These are the things added to the dictionary every year. Chillax, right? To chill and relax, smush together staycation, stay home and be on vacation, bromance, I almost didn't use that one, brothers and romance, it's, uh, just to be clear, it's two guys who are good friends and hang out with each other way too much, it's the guy equivalent to BFFs, right, even the nickname of our, our town, you've probably heard this, man happiness, right, Manhattan and happiness mushed together, and so here though, Paul is mushing together these two words, God and the word for breathe out or to blow, right? His point is this, that this is not some book written by men about God, but a a book, while physically written by the hands of man, is inspired by God. It is breathed out of the mouth of God. Only what God desires to be written down is written down, and whatever God desires not to be written down is not written down. Simply put, we can trust our Bibles. We can trust the Word of God. And so to this end, Paul, in writing in Second Peter, says this, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Having established then that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, Paul now moves to, to make a few statements about the powerful uses of Scripture and really just in the life of the believer. And in other words, Paul's teaching us today four ways that, that reading the Word of God and sitting under the preaching of the Word of God and believing the Word of God and encourages us to grow in Christ. So the first is, is teaching. We know that word. In verse 16, he says that the Word of God is profitable for teaching. Teaching is all about imparting wisdom to another person about true things. You remember in math class, The teacher teaches children by saying, 3 plus 2 is 5, right? And children learn to add as the teacher shows them what is true. In the same way, we come to real and true knowledge of God by the teaching of the Word. On the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 4 states this: it says, God is a spirit. We teach our children that God is a spirit. Where do we learn this about God? From His Word. John 4, 24 reveals to us this truth about God saying simply, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Without the word of God, we simply would not know this. You might make something up. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but you couldn't know this. And so God has revealed this in Scripture. Scripture also teaches us the norms for faith and life. Scripture teaches us who God is. It teaches us what we are to, to believe concerning God, about the, the Trinity, about angels, about demons, about man, about sin, about salvation, sanctification, forgiveness, love, hope, and about God's sovereign work in the world. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory, and excellence. How important it is that we believe the word of God and that we learn about life and faith from the word of God. Now, a few years ago, I was sitting in a Panera back near Kansas City, and I was actually working on a sermon on this exact same text. And this man came and sat down at the table next to me, and he was a very talkative older man. And when he saw my Bible, he began to ask me, so what are you, you know, what are you working on? and I told him I was preparing a sermon for that Sunday and he asked what I was preaching on and I told him the verses and I gave him just a little bit of explanation uh, and I'll be honest at this point I was, I was kind of annoyed. I, I wanted to study about these the uses of scripture and I felt crunched for time and, and here was this guy just wanting to chat and so he told me that he was a, a member of a Presbyterian church in Lawrence once once he learned a little bit about me and and I asked what denomination and he told me the, the PCUSA and I asked uh, he asked what denomination our church was and and I told him the PCA. And then he started telling me, well, you know, I've never understood the differences of those. And I told him, well, there's a few different views on some stuff. And, and you know, he continued to, to ask these questions. And honestly, at this point, I was trying to avoid the questions. I didn't want to have the conversation. And the first thing that came to mind when he started asking, you know, like, name a difference. I was like, well, you know, we don't, we don't ordain women to the office of elder. And he just seemed shocked by this. He then said, so, so y'all are traditional. And I, I, don't, I wouldn't use that term to describe us. And he said, so you're fundamentalists. I know people usually mean legalists when they say that, and they said, I, I definitely, I definitely would not call that. And I could see in his face that, that something had come to his mind, and he was, he was almost debating whether to ask me about it. And, and, he, and he got down real, real low, as if someone really cared what we were talking about, and, and he whispered, and he asked in this almost disbelief, do you all still believe in predestination? And I responded, Absolutely. And then he asked, how could you believe that God would choose some for salvation and, and let others go to hell? And then I realized what was happening here. I'm studying how the Word of God is useful for teaching. And here is a guy asking me how I can believe in the doctrine of predestination. And I told him, I believe it only because that's what the Word of God says. That's how it shows God works in salvation. And then I showed him the actual word predestination in Ephesians 1, and that kind of caught him off guard. Um, and, and I led him through Romans 9 and, and various other texts showing this from Scripture. And I even shared with them, you know, I did not always like this this belief. I didn't always believe in predestination. And in fact, when I first heard it, I, I hated it. Absolutely hated it. But that my view of God and, and the way that he works in the world was being shaped by Scripture and, and not the other way around. And, and today, I, I love this doctrine because... Really, there's no other way that I I could have believed. And so at that point, he thanked me, and I could see he was done talking to me. And that was the end of of our conversation. But, you know, it was just this beautiful opportunity where where while I'm being annoyed by someone, God's taking the very text I'm studying and and putting it into actual practice. And the Word of God is for that. It's for teaching. And it's going to teach us things that we don't love sometimes. Yes, I want you to love the, the Word of God. I want you to so believe it that it shapes who you are and what you believe, even when it's very difficult. The second use of Scripture we see in our text is reproof. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof. To reproof is to rebuke a confessing believer, to bring about conviction in them. It evokes our our conscience, and our conscience is that God-given ability to evaluate our own actions in relation to God's Word as the Holy Spirit works in us. It's a proper sense of guilt for actual sin, and that's to be differentiated from just guilt for something you shouldn't feel guilty for. So we use Scripture to point out something another is doing which is contrary to what God has called us to do or God has called us to believe in the hope that the Holy Spirit's going to bring about conviction in the life. Say a brother in Christ has been lying to his boss about how he uses his time at work. We might reproof him by saying, Listen... Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. The hope then is that he's going to recognize and, and feel the, the sin of his behavior. Not because he's embarrassed that, you know, now we know about this sin, but because he realizes this is an offense against God as revealed in God's word. And so the goal of reproof is that it will lead to legit repentance in another believer. So the third use of scripture given here then is correction. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. And so while reproof is showing someone what they're doing contrary to the word of God, correction then is showing another believer how they can go about thinking or behaving rightly. The word literally here means to, to set up straight again. If something falls over, you, you set it up straight. There's an action happening there. Really, this is what we see if you ever try to teach someone young how to drive a car, like like way young, way too young to even be driving a car. I'm not the only one who does this, right? Uh, <laughs> so many years from that they're they're so concerned, they get in their car seats and they're thinking what they've seen in the movies, and they're so concerned about what's going on in the car that they absolutely forget about where the car is going. And so you can kind of picture it, you're driving along and hopefully you're not on a major highway that's unwise, and, and they begin to drive off the road, and that's not a good thing. And so you reproof them, right? This is the last thing we looked at. You reproof them by telling them you're driving off the road. Okay, that's the wrong thing you're doing. And then you correct them by telling them how not to drive off the road. Something like turn a, a little to the left because that's where the road is. Or, or maybe even reach over and you grab the steering wheel and you kind of show them, okay, back back this way. Let's drive like this so we can stay on the road. God's holy scripture is, is like that. It, it reproofs us showing the various sins in our life, but it also showing us the right way to do something. It, it's showing us the proper way, uh, and so that our lives will be in line with what we see in scripture. And then the fourth way, or the fourth youth of scripture we see here is this, this training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training and righteousness. There is a, a need for ongoing training through the ministry of the Word. Our studying in ourselves and, and with others on a regular basis. And, and as the Catechism tells us, particularly uh, in our hearing it preached. When we meet together for worship. It's, it's a means for our growth, for our, our sanctification. For our learning to be more like Christ through the grace of God. And so we've looked at all these four then. So we've seen that the Holy Scriptures are useful for teaching. For reproof for correction and for training and righteousness and we see that at the end right the result of this is that we are both competent and equipped for every good work and so God's work is powerful in the life of the believer however if we're not spending regular time under the ministry of the word then we cannot expect for the word to be at work in our lives right common sense uh, not for ourselves not for the discipleship of our children, not for the, this covenant community's sake, not for the world that we've been called into to be salt and light. And so over the years, I've found that most people I've come in contact with, they have these three different views of Scripture, and I want to kind of go over them with you. And so as we come to a close, I just want to take a, a moment and, and really consider these three different views. And the first is this. It's, it's a secular view. It's, it's, just, it's just a book. It's not really the Word of God. It's, it's just something some guys wrote down a long time ago and Christians like it, right? There's no truth in it. God can change this view. I expect there's, there's people in this room who once held a secular view of Scripture and God has given them eyes of faith to, to believe, to view it differently. And uh, that might be a view and, and just know that God can change that. Second one is obligation. You do read your Bible, but, but only out of some legalistic sense of obligation. It's you know, just enough to check it off a list in the morning or in the evening and, and then on with life without thinking about it. You feel bad that you don't read it enough, but, but that never seems to change. And, you know, for years, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, kept the Bible texts from the people in the pews. Their service was in Latin, while the people spoke local languages, say German or English. And in 1526, William Tyndale translated part of the Bible to English. And as a result, Henry VIII ordered that Tyndale be arrested, tried, strangled, and burned at the stake arrested, tried, strangled, and burned at the stake for producing a Bible that Christians could read in their own language. And I think of this, and I think there's times in my life when this Bible just sits on the shelf completely unread, and my life suffers for it. And to the degree that's true in your life, I imagine your life suffers for it. So why? I mean, why, why is it so uninteresting? When people are being brutally honest with me, and that's the way I prefer it, I'm often told that the Bible is just boring. It's just not interesting. And when I hear statements like this, I, I wonder if you've ever truly read the Bible, fully engaged with what's going on in redemptive history, what, what God is really doing, what all these stories are pushing towards. It's an incredibly interesting book. The late... Musician Rich Mullins uh, spoke to this well, and he said this. He said, The Bible is not a book for the faint of heart. It's a book full of the greed and glory and violence and tenderness and sex and betrayal and that befits mankind. It's not the collection of pretty little antidotes mouthed by pious little ch- ch- church mice. It does not so much nibble at our shoe leather as it cuts to the heart and splits to the marrow from the bone. It does not give us answers to our small minded questions but truth that goes beyond what we even know to ask. But we won't experience that way if it remains unread and out of our life. The third view of Scripture I'll call hunger. You read it often. You do what you must to understand it. You desire to live by it. There may be tattered pages and highlights and writing throughout. You, you love it. You need it for spiritual food. Every day, just like you need real food, you view it like Matthew 4.4 4, that tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Now, for us, many of us, fall between obligation and hunger. You, you want the Bible to be important to you. You do. You desire to read it often, but temporary joys of the world drown out that desire. There seems to never be time to sit, to slow down, to rest, to just read and be nourished by the word of God. The mornings are a rush, and by the time things slow down in the evening, you crave something mindless more than the Word of God. Today, we are surrounded by so much that keeps us from spending time in the world. Television, internet, school, work, family responsibilities, a thousand other things we could probably name. Many of them, even really good things, serving others and fellowshipping with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And, I'll say this, as one who's been called by God to shepherd the flock, I encourage you, particularly this week, set aside time every day this week. I don't care when it is, but pursue Christ in the Scriptures. And if you don't know what to read, read in the Psalms or or the Gospel of John. Read slow, though. Read slow with the goal of comprehension rather than completion. Pray beforehand, asking God to, to give you understanding. If you don't understand something, talk about it with others. That's one of the things that we tend to, to not do very well as, as the church today. If you want to talk, call me anytime. Call Travis, call John, call, call anyone in the congregation. We'd be glad to, to chat with you about anything that you're reading Scripture or anything at all. And so my hope and my prayer, though, is this, that, that you'll be stirred up this afternoon to pursue Christ and the Scriptures, to make hearing it preached a priority each week. To make a, a daily meal in the Word a, a top priority for your life and for the life of your family. And and really, if you want to know more of what that looks like, seriously, please let me know. I'd love to sit and chat with someone about it. I'd love to learn things from people as well as just give some ideas of, on what that might look like in your family. So please do contact me if that's the case. So I, I want to end with this. It's a, a statement from Samuel Box on the Word of God. And if you take your bulletin and turn back to the the very beginning, in fact, you'll be able to read along with me. It's in the reflection section. This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for all eternity.